All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the second hour, they are Crocodile Gold, Trevale Resources, Intertopia uh, uh, Corporation, American Manganese, and Barkerville Gold. Well, I'm really pleased to have Sean Hyman with us today. He is a 20-year veteran in the markets. Uh, he's practically done it all. He's been a stockbroker. Uh, he's, man- he's managed a team of 19 stockbrokers, and now he is a foreign exchange trader. Seven years ago, Sean made that life-changing decision. Uh, to switch from stocks to foreign exchange uh, trading. And sooner a- soon after that, he uh, started teaching other people how to trade currencies as well. Uh, he earned uh, the nickname in the process of Professor FX. Uh, now, uh, he's a highly sought-after currency analyst, and Sean has also been a respected writer for World Currency Watch since 2007. Uh, he now serves as investment director for World Currency Watch, and he is a contributing writer uh, for a long-term currency capitalist newsletter. Uh, in his uh, service, Currency Cross Trader, Sean reveals uh, his most closely guarded currency trades to his band of loyal subscribers and teaches them in conferences all over the world. Welcome, Sean, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hey, it's good to be here with you. Really good to have you. Uh, where are you located? I'm not sure where I'm talking to you from. Uh, I'm in the Dallas, Texas area. I thought you might be from that part of the world. I wonder <laughs> why I thought that. Somehow you sound a little bit like some of my other friends from down that part of the world. Well, what's it like making the trade? I mean, that's I mean, making the change, I should say, from a stockbroker to a currency trader. Quite a difference, isn't it? Um, it is. There are a lot of similarities and a lot of fundamentals that, that carry over. But I do like it because, it's it, to me, it's more of a pure market less manipulated, and you don't have to worry near as much about CEO greed, the fudging of books, backdated stock options, you know, all the types of uh, tricks and things like that, that uh, even if you can read balance sheets, uh, still can lead you astray. And so it's more of a pure market based off of macro fundamentals, and, um, and, and they're not as easily manipulated. They probably are manipulated a little by governments, but not near like uh, a CEO might do with a stock, because with a CEO, it's always the best time to buy a stock no matter what, and so there's huge biases there. <laughs> yeah, I know. We just had one on a little earlier today, and I was kidding him a little bit. I said, uh, you know, we had we had made almost 10 times our money in that particular stock in my newsletter, and, uh, you know, I, I asked him, 
uh, I said, I don't suppose you're going to tell our listeners to sell your stock, but uh, you know, why should we keep holding it after we've made such great gains? Anyway, you're right about that. I would, I would wonder, though, about your comment about manipulation. I guess it depends on how you define it. I hear what you're saying in terms of a, a single company. Obviously, things can be done to... Uh, to cause uh, you know gyrations in the demand and, and supply for sure of stock, but speaking of supply of currencies, I mean Mr. Bernanke uh, and other central bankers are out there creating enormous amounts of currency. Isn't that a form of manipulation in a sense? There is. I mean, there, there shouldn't be money printing, but there there is, and that's one form of mani- uh, manipulation. And then it's it's my personal opinion and belief that a lot of governments, the U.S. included. Um, downplay a lot of uh, things like inflation numbers and things like that that they uh, tie a lot of retirement pensions and governmental raises to and and other facets of the economy. So it's to their advantage to downplay certain aspects of that, and so I think that they err to the cautious side rather than where things really usually end up. Well, that may be the case. A government, uh, we've had John Williams, an economist on this show, talk about uh, if you looked at inflation the same way you counted it back in uh, before Ronald Reagan's time, we'd be looking at something closer to 10% than 2% or whatever they're claiming it is. Uh, if you looked at unemployment, it would be closer to that of the Great Depression than what they're looking at now. So games are played, there's no doubt about it, statistically. But then does that cause or does that provide an opportunity for people like you, the professional traders, to look at the markets as they really are, as opposed to the uh, markets with smoke and mirrors that are given to us by our politicians. Yeah, it does, because I would trade one way if I strictly listen to governmental data, and I, I trade another way looking at real bouts of inflation uh, by looking at, you know, gold, copper, silver, you know, different different commodities, uh, CRB index, and, and looking and see where those are really going because the government will say that we really don't have inflation. Matter of fact, they'll sometimes say we don't have enough of it. <laughs> and, you know, and but but if you've looked at, you know, any commodity price chart, I mean, they're just about all headed north. And um, so there's definitely inflation there that the real man on the street feels and uh, we feel it when we gas up our tanks and, and buy food at the grocery stores, and that's where the real man lives. And so, to me, there is real-world inflation out there, whether it shows up in their data or not. Now, you are uh, – I think you you told me before we went on the air that you are what is known as a swing trader. Could you explain mm-hmm. to our listeners what you mean by that? Yeah, in the Currency Cross Trader Service, uh, we take trades for days to weeks, uh, a month is typically a long trade uh, for us, but we, we don't uh, day trade, so we're not in and out uh, within a day or two typically. So it's we're kind of a, a, a medium between a, a position trader and a day trader, kind of a medium ground there. Okay, one of the things I, I believe is true about the currency markets, and I myself have never traded in them, uh, I think they're they're fascinating, but you have an enormous amount of leverage, don't you, in those markets? For a small amount of money, you can control a big amount of currency. Is that right? Yeah, and it, it used to be bigger leverage than what it is right now. It used to be 400 to 1, which was fairly insane, and uh, U.S. regulation has brought it down to 50 to 1 currently, uh, and even on some exotics, uh, down to 20 to 1. And uh, of course, in, in my service, we you know don't use anywhere near the amount of leverage that uh, is affordable to somebody because that's just insane and not prudent as far as money management purposes go. But you can definitely take a little bit and uh, potentially turn it into a lot due to the leverage factor. Yes, I guess because if you're leveraged real high and the trade goes against you, you got to cough up uh, you got to cough up some margin money or else you lose your position, right? 
Well, um, true, but there, there are certain Forex firms out there um, that only allow you to lose the capital that's in your account. So if I put in, you know, a few thousand dollars uh, and the trade went way bad on me, um, that, that's literally all I could lose. So I'm, I'm, certain firms allow you to be limited to the actual capital in your account, even though there is leverage. And I really suggest going with firms like that because uh, of that safeguard, because you don't want to get upside down in a, you know, highly leveraged market. Okay, what sort of uh, leverage do you uh, do you recommend to your to your uh, to your clients or your subscribers? Um, you know, usually ten to one or twelve to one, somewhere around in there is 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 fairly typical. Uh, Twenty to one would be extremely high. So I, I don't think anybody needs to use anywhere near the uh, fifty to one that's allowable. It, they they just big you know dig too big a holes in their account that is too hard to climb back out of. What uh, what kind of person is suitable to get involved in trading currencies? Are we talking about really wealthy people, or middle class, upper middle class people? What sort of what sort of money should you? How much money should you have to say open an account? Well, I, you know, I would say I suggest people put no more than about ten percent of their total net worth into mm -hmm. something like this. Uh, it definitely does not have to be wealthy people by any stretch, but it does need to be risk capital. So mm -hmm. they want to have some investments that are uh, in non-margin instruments, maybe some stocks or what have you, but uh, and, and then move on to something a little bit higher on in the risk scale with a smaller amount of money. But uh, people can get, you know, they can get started for, you know, hundreds to a handful of thousand. Uh, of dollars in a currency account and uh, and get started that way. So you don't have to be rich at all by any stretch. Mm -hmm. uh, and so let's let's uh, let's talk about the U.S. dollar. What is your prognosis for the dollar? I mean, there's an awful lot of doomsayers out there about the dollar these days. As Mr. Bernanke uh, has let it be known, he's going to just quantitative ease us to death. I guess maybe. I guess the big question now is. Do you think that quantitative easing is about to end, or will they pretend it's ending and then through the back door perhaps issue some more currency? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, they, you know, they, they said they're going to end at QE2, uh, and then of course, it, and then today they said, well, okay, we may reinvest some Treasury debt to make this not such, such an abrupt uh, end to the QE program. But uh, to me, that's like the warm-up speech for uh, you know to, to lead into QE3. Um, mm -hmm. The, the GDP growth of the of the major G7 economies is just keeps going slower and slower and slower, and so you know ultimately, in my opinion, they're going to have to inject more capital to keep falsely propping things up to keep them from being what they really would be without that. And so I think ultimately, before it's all said and done, um, you'll have QE3, more money printing, and the dollar will suffer as a result. Mm -hmm. Well, if we go to, you, you call that capital, I'm, I'm wondering if it's capital that just isn't uh, watering down of existing capital because uh, well, this is maybe a more of an economic question and uh, your response obviously is to, uh, you, you know, is to what, hap what is happening in the markets. But let's say, how does this sort of thing affect your trading? Let's say this news you just talked about, was it today that you said they, they hinted that they might go out and buy, uh, that, that the Fed... Uh, the Treasury might go out and, or that the Fed might go out and buy Treasuries. Um, so when you heard that news, how did you trade on it? Yeah, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's some maturing debt that they are probably going to go in and, and reinvest. And it's basically because there's at least two of the chief lieutenants in the Fed that really uh, feel that the economy is 
too weak to end the uh, in the program. So Bernanke is most likely going to do that. So uh, with that said, it really uh, has me dodging the dollar and, and really going into uh, currency crosses, uh, which are major currencies paired against each other, like uh, CAD yen, for instance. So buying the Canadian dollar versus the Japanese yen. And so that's that's a way that uh, you can apply it just to escape the dollar um, from all the you know, manipulations of the Fed. So you would now be looking for a rising Canadian dollar versus a declining yen? Yes. Um, we had an interesting trade at a conference. Uh, an interesting idea was passed along by Mish Shedlack. He's been a, uh, a guest on this show a couple of times, and he was suggesting a short the yen, long uh, Japanese stocks. How does that strike you? I know you're not a, a stock investor, but does that make any sense to you? Um, it does, because particularly if you're talking about the Nikkei, because uh, there's been some concerted interventions over the past month from many of the central bankers in the G7. Um, they basically brought the uh, the yen down by collectively selling it, and so they're um, doing a collective intervention to try to help the Japanese economy recover, help their stock market recover, which really just took a bloodbath on the uh, earthquake and tsunami uh, type of episode that happened. So... Um, Concerted interventions are typically very, very successful. Individual uh, interventions are typically almost across the board not successful. And so it definitely um, bears paying attention to. Back in 1995, they did the same thing, and they were very successful uh, pushing the the dollar yen from like 80 to about 150 or uh, uh, 150, 160 level. So um, concerted interventions are very successful, and so it's probably a legitimate uh, trade. So they're going to pretty much do whatever they have to to eventually get that stock market up, and a lot of that will be courtesy of a falling yen. So a concerted intervention, I guess what you're talking about is uh, is an intervention that in, that includes a, a host of G7 countries? Yes. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. many central bankers that uh, met and intervened all collectively at the same time. They've done this a handful of times uh, since the mid-1980s. It's not very common, but when they do it, uh, so far, of the four that I've seen since about 1985, have all been uh, successful interventions. Okay, so they so their 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 goal would be to get the yen higher to gain or, or to knock it down further. Yeah, to get the yen lower so that Japanese exports and appear exports. much cheaper and and really give a shot in the arm to the Japanese economy, thus boosting their stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but isn't it uh, the, the case that most countries are, are hoping to get their currencies weaker these days? Um, a lot of them are. Uh, I think with the concerted interventions, of course, you're going to see it more successful in uh, in Japan than a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. So, there, but there's there's certain ones that are going to strengthen, uh, no matter how much they possibly don't want them to strengthen, uh, like Canada's dollar. And then there's others that uh, you know continually want theirs to uh, you know head head lower to give them a uh, an exporting edge. Mm-hmm. The Chinese uh, government, the Chinese are, are raising interest rates now. It certainly uh, doesn't do too much to lower their their currency, but they they do control the currency to a great extent through other mechanisms, right? Right. Yeah. They they pretty much keep a, a peg and they they keep it very much uh, controlled on the uh, the yuan. They're eventually going to have to uh, raise the rate of the the yuan, really, whether they want to or not, because. Um, inflation and the growth is just really getting out of hand, and it could, you know, become a very serious problem if it if it gets too far out of hand. So, 
They're raising bank reserve requirements. That's one step. They're raising interest rates, which is another. But they're really going to have to uh, bring about you know, the, a higher valuation in the yuan to uh, further slow things as well. So they're, before it's all said and done, they're going to have to enact all three. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting because uh, the Chinese obviously uh, are still piling up net uh, uh, exports, I guess. They're a trade surplus nation. That Those trade surpluses continue to grow, do they? Yeah, they are. They're, they're a, a huge trade surplus nation, the biggest, uh, the biggest out there in the world, and that continues to uh, cause a huge uh, imbalance, and that's one of the big reasons why the U.S. gripes about them falsely holding their yuan uh, so low to really give them an unfair advantage in shooting up the, those exports. But at the same time, when we create trillions of dollars uh, and create that and flood the markets with U.S. dollars, are we not trashing our own currencies? Is that not a form of manipulation? Well, we, we are, and it, it's definitely a double standard because we're, we're basically doing that to our currency, and we're telling them to not do that to their currency. So it, it, <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not legitimate, but that's what they are doing. Now, there was, uh, it seems interesting to me that Timothy Geithner recently talked about uh, the possible need to, I don't know exactly if I'm going to frame this, phrase this the right way, but he was hinting at uh, the possible agreement on the part of the United States to go along with a Chinese uh, notion for a restructuring of the global monetary system such that there would be a basket of currencies, and I gather perhaps gold would be a part of that as well. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if uh, you know, if to the extent that the United States is is dependent on Chinese savings, Chinese net uh, trade surplus to come back and buy U.S. Treasuries, uh, if if there may not be some, you know, some politics or some understanding on the part of of our government that we're going to need to perhaps someday give up our reserve currency status in some other to some other form some other currency regime, um, and Mr. Geithner uh, suggesting that we might be willing, the U.S. might be willing to consider something like that. Do you have any thoughts on that topic of uh, a new currency regime sometime down in the future? Yeah, I, you know, he makes it sound like we have the control and say in it, and uh, there may be a little bit of that, but ultimately uh, the market uh, will have the biggest say, and with with the high debts piling up, with the printing of money and, and, and all kinds of other uh, onslaughts against the dollar, uh, it just keeps sending it lower and lower and lower, which is really ruining the uh, the sentiment in the dollar. And so you're finding more and more countries uh, already circumventing the dollar and finding other ways to uh, conduct trade without going through the dollar, which really never happened uh, before since uh, like World War II or so. And so um, the, the markets are already starting this process. It's definitely in the beginning stages. Um, it could go into... SDRs, those special drawing mm-hmm. rights, um, that it's like a basket of, uh, of currencies that would have gold and euro and yen and pound and maybe even the BRIC nations uh, mm-hmm. in it. Uh, but, but no doubt the, the U.S. dollar eventually loses its, uh, you know, its world's reserve currency status, and uh, it's going to be worse for us as Americans. Uh, it'll make it a lot more expensive to pay for things, because right now we pay our bills in, in U.S. dollars, but if we had to start paying a portion of those bills in uh, appreciating foreign currencies against our depreciating one, um, life will get very miserable very quickly. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's it's not as if it isn't uh, becoming miserable already for a vast majority of Americans. We've had another guest on this show named uh, Howard Davidowitz, who's fairly well-known, uh, frequent guest on CNBC and other major media. He's a retail expert, and he's suggesting that 80% of Americans are doing worse and seeing their standard of living decline, while 20% are doing as well or better. So if, if what you're saying is that we, are, we may be having to pay an awful lot more for the oil that we import and the gasoline we put in our tanks to drive to work, I, I have to agree with you that, uh, that that would not be a good thing. To what extent do you think now rising oil prices are a result of the declining U.S. dollar? Um, I think they're a contribute, uh, contributing factor for sure. Anytime you've got uh, major commodities heading up like gold, oil, silver, copper, um, it's definitely a weight upon the uh, the U.S. dollar for sure. Um, one of the biggest things that's that's also you know basically hindering the world is is as oil goes up, it's it's definitely becoming an ankle weight uh, to the <clears throat> to the GDPs of the world, and it's slowing down the U.S. Uh, GDP along with uh, many others. And uh, the U.K. already has a negative year-over-year GDP, so does Japan. So you've got two out of the G7 that are already there, and most of the others don't even have a half to 1% of GDP growth. So there's, there's a lot of economies out there just coasting out there, and nobody wants to say much about it because they don't want to scare people and sound the alarm. But this is very concerning to me, and if you had oil just stay at these levels or head higher, it can easily take those, uh, those, G, those G7 economies practically all into uh, negative GDP growth. And so you have economies retracting, and, uh, of course, it just opens up Pandora's box, and you've got high unemployment again and so forth. So it's, it's, it's not looking pretty. Okay, so we've got negative GDP growth. We've got enormous amounts of indebtedness that cannot be repaid. We had uh, Lawrence Kotlikoff, professor in the Clinton administration, professor of economics and on the Clinton economic team, on this show. Kotlikoff has talked about how the uh, the off balance sheet commitments of the United States government for Social Security and for um, for Social Security and for Medicare and the like, uh, comes out to something like $202 trillion, cannot be repaid. No stretch in the imagination can it be repaid. We've had John Williams, economist on, as I mentioned a moment ago, who talks about if, uh, if taxes were 100% of our GDP, it would not be sufficient to, ma- uh, to finance the amount of commitments our government has on its books right now. So, the question is this. It seems to me we have a couple of different forces that are butting heads. You're talking about tepid to negative GDP growth throughout the global economy. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we have interest rates at the moment that are very, very low, and uh, we have a struggling global economy. How can the debt be repaid less without – I mean, the only way I see is to try to inflate uh, – is that the way you see it, and, and is that what all the countries are going to do? I mean, we have the European, uh, the, the European Union uh, being somewhat resistive to continuing uh, endless amounts of money printing, but nonetheless, it seems to me that we're basically maybe the U.S. is in worse shape by far than the Canadians, for example, but but the whole world seems to be struggling and choking on debt. So where do we go from here? Do you do you worry at all about a deflationary implosion uh, like we had in 2008-2009? Um, it could happen. What what I think that we're entering right now really is a stagflationary environment where we you know we're, it's like what we had here in the U.S. in the 1970s where we have you know soaring inflation yet uh, slow slow uh, GDP growth and so that's mm-hmm. a really scary uh, situation. 
you know, we always talk about how we're going to grow our way out of everything, our debts and mm-hmm. and all that. But but it's it's assumed that growth will will be vibrant, and uh, and that's the that's the key component that concerns me. I don't think that we're growing our way out of our uh, our problems. I don't think people are going to be able to do that in their personal finances all that easily, and I certainly don't think that we'll be able to do it on a governmental level at all. Yeah, and and I mean, again, with the middle class struggling as they are, jobs, uh, food being more costly, uh, gasoline being more difficult to you know to finance. Obviously, the uh, the disposable income of of average people is shrinking very very significantly with rises. And if the real cost of living is going up much faster than the government suggests, uh, you know, it, it was um, a Federal Reserve official here in Queens, New York, where I live, was was trying to. Uh, amuse people, you know, they were complaining about inflation, and he said, well, you know, you can buy a computer for half the price it cost a couple of years ago, and the guy in the crowd stood up and said, yes, but you can't eat computers. You can't eat computers. You've got to drive to work. You've got to put food on your table. So what is, uh, now, what we saw immediately after the decline in 2008-2009 was a uh, a strengthening of the dollar, Right. And and I want to ask you about this because one concept uh, that seems to make sense to me is that when the system is expanding as it has been, uh, you uh, you know basically if you borrow anyway, you're taking a short on the currency, aren't you? You borrow a uh, dollars to go out and buy a car, for example. You're shorting the currency and you're you're going long on a, on an item on a on a good a car in this case. Now, when the uh, you know when the margin clerk calls and you have to sell whatever you're able to sell in order to pay her back, then you have to sell those items and go out and buy dollars. And we saw the dollar rise very considerably immediately. Uh, you know, with the Lehman Brothers collapse through, I guess through 2009. Uh, do you see that possibility happening if we have a another credit implosion? First of all, do you think that's that's likely to happen? And secondly, if it does happen, would you predict the dollar would get stronger? Uh, perverse as it may seem in that event? Yeah, it could definitely happen. That's that's honestly one of the only times I get bullish on the U.S. dollar is, is basically when everything goes into crisis mode because people still do run to the world's reserve currency in those times, and there is a lot of reversal of other trades that, uh, that makes that uh, happen as well. So uh, if, if stocks corrected severely, um, you could see a, a decent size uh, dollar um, you know, dollar boost in in the short term. So there can definitely be some bear market rallies in the in the uh, dollar. So I think you're in a secular bear market uh, in the dollar that may have some uh, some some violent upswings along the way. But overall, over over the years, it will you know still basically head into the dustbin. So would you, from time to time, then as a swing trader, look to benefit from those short term upward moves in the dollar? Yes, because sometimes, even in a downtrend, sometimes the the, the crowd gets tilted to uh, to just one side of the boat, and and things are never just a one way bet, and they're never that easy and that clear. And so when everybody gets so adamant uh, that something's going to happen, that's that's usually when, at least temporarily, it switches gears and does the exact opposite. So, um, and, and we're about to get there again on the sentiment in the uh, in the dollar in the near term, and so there there could come a pop. Uh, that we have, for instance, if we have um, weakness in 
Um, the stock markets during the summer that could do it. Um, commodities sometimes seasonally get weak in the uh, in the summer. Some of them that could uh, that could do it. So there's a few things like that that can temporarily give it a reprieve. Uh, but overall, it uh, it will head lower. Um, so really, people should use those uh, huge rallies to uh, basically get into uh, other stronger currencies, um, gold, silver, other hard assets like that. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you, we've only got about a minute left. Let, let me ask you, uh, for a short and term, short and longer term, what would be your favorite? Your what would what currency you'd be most bullish on? And then short and long term, what currency would, would you be most bearish on? Uh, we're talking about the major, let's say, G20 currencies. Yeah, the uh, the Canadian dollar, uh, I'm very bullish on because of the oil trade. I mean, it's one of the few things that c- continues to strengthen. And even if most of the world does bad by higher prices in oil, Canada still at this point does uh, does good by higher oil and oil um, and the Canadian dollar tend to track each other very well. So. Uh, being short the dollar cad is uh, is 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 a, is a you know, trade that I'm very favorable upon. Um, the the currencies that I'm most bearish on uh, right now would, would overall in the long term be the dollar and the yen. The yen has simply gotten overvalued, and you've got central banks uh, basically all but ensuring that the yen will head lower over time. And history tells us they've been successful at that. And then, of course, the dollar, just because everything that we're doing from money printing to debt loads uh, to higher taxation, uh, the wrong governmental policies, uh, anti-capitalism policies, and that sort of thing, all these things will eventually chip away at the dollar. Uh, it's just a matter of whether it's a slow descent or if there's a uh, rapid descent. But the, the direction, I feel, is fairly sure over time, over one, three, five years' time. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you very much. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I had a whole lot of more questions I wanted to ask you about interest rates, your views on on, on interest rates, because certainly uh, that is uh, you know major a major part of, of, of what goes into currency pricing these days and U.S. Treasuries and all of that. But perhaps another time we can have you on. I want to ask you just to tell our listeners where they can track your work. Is there a place where they can follow your work? They can go yeah, to a website, go, perhaps? You can go to worldcurrencywatch.com or globalcurrencyexpo.com. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Sean, uh, for being with us today, uh, for your insights in the currency markets. Uh, It's been a pleasure having you. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with my partner, Roger Wiegand. He's going to be back with me. I'm sure Roger will have some comments on the currencies and commodities, certainly gold and silver, when we come back with Roger Wiegand. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. 
Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Enertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Enertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CN. SX Exchange. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try to. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am happy to have with me my partner, Roger Wiegand. Uh, Roger's, of course, been with us, uh, talks uh, almost every week on this show, not always, but uh, good to have you back, Roger. Thank you. You and I are going to be heading down to Phoenix uh, later this week to a show down there. Uh, would you care to tell our listeners about it? And if, yes. uh, if you uh, That's uh, the, the Resource Consultants uh, Gorman Wealth Protection Conference. Um, we've been going now, I think this is probably our fourth year, I'm guessing, fourth or fifth. Yeah. Uh, the, the conference is being held this weekend on Friday and Saturday uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's actually in Tempe. And the, uh, the place where you can go to get the information on the Internet is go to buysilvernow.com. That's B-U-Y-S-I-L-V-E-R-N-O-W.com. Also, you can call... Uh, on an 800 number, that would be 800-494-4149. The price to attend the conference for two days is 179 per person or 300 per couple, and it's held in the suburban Phoenix in Tempe. Uh, we like the conference because it's uh, the people are very enthusiastic. We've got a good lineup of speakers, and there will be, I'm, I'm guessing we see three, there's probably seven or eight speakers all told, and also the the uh, the people that go or those that can't go can get a DVD. Um, we'll have the information in our letter afterwards because the entire conference uh, is is filmed with video. 
Right, Roger. And you might just mention, uh, you and I will be speaking, but also there's Arch Crawford, there's Ian McAvity, I believe uh, maybe we've got Richard Mayberry, um, and, and some others. So I always look forward to this conference as well because of the uh, the quality of the, the speakers. Uh, it's a good time. It's a, Of course, it's nice weather. A nice warm weather out in uh, Phoenix now. I understand it's going to be up in the 90s or something like that. But uh, it's it's a good time, and um, I think a lot of good information. Ian McAvity is really sharp when it comes to looking. I think as a historian and as a uh, as a technician, Arch Crawford, of course, has his sort of unconventional. Uh, 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 way of looking at markets and some people we've had Arch on this show and some people really either love him or you, or you hate him uh, the views anyway uh, when he looks at the stars and tries to figure out what's going to happen a lot of people look at it as hocus pocus what do you think Roger? Well I think when, when Arch was in New York a lot of years ago he worked for some big companies up there and he was what you might call a regular guy in the business and he got interested in astrology as it relates to investing and the more he got into it the more he discovered that there was some truth to the alignment of uh, stars in astrology along with investing and that's one of the things that he does now regularly in his newsletter and I think right, I originally know. some years ago they were laughing at him about it they don't laugh so more he's pretty accurate well he was uh, with Merrill Lynch I know I know that he has a very thorough technical uh, analytical background he's also very very strong on fundamentals. Um, he is a really nice guy. He's humble. He's, uh, uh, you know, whatever you want to say about Arch Crawford, he's sincere for sure. And uh, and he will be the first to acknowledge that, uh, uh, you know, that that, the, that these are not foolproof uh, analytical tools, but at the same time, they seem to be right often enough that they bear some watching. So I, Arch is always uh, very entertaining, very interesting. So I would. Again, that number, Roger, maybe you just have that phone number again. So that you can phone just... number again is 800-494-4149. And then, of course, after the show, uh, we'll have more information in our newsletters about where you can get uh, uh, DVDs and, and more, more information. Excellent. We might just pass that on to our listeners here on this show as well. Well, let's turn to the markets, Roger. Gold uh, just uh, kissed $1,500 today, I believe, at least in the in the spot markets. Uh, silver is, is on a tear. We had Sean Broderick here, and he gave us five reasons why he thinks silver uh, is still heading much higher. What are the charts telling you now when you look at silver and gold strictly on a technical basis? Uh, for, let's take gold first. The June most active futures contract today, last price after hours, uh, $1,496, and that's a minor support. It did touch $1,500.50 today for a high. Uh, the open interest is a little lower than it's been lately, but it's still way up there at 368000 The trading range was $12. We've seen the trading range on gold as high as $40 in exceptional days, but the pressure is to the long side, and we think it does continue. Uh, traders and investors should keep in mind, though, that we see a resistance on gold at 1507. It's nearby. But on cycles in time, when we're looking at the charts, we think that this rally in gold can go as long as May 5th to May 10th. And it doesn't mean it has to stop there, but that's, that's our best estimate. Now, getting on to silver, uh, May silver contract most active it did touch $44 today, $44.18, uh, 44 the, the, the pennies seem to stop in the same pl price regularly, 
and it did that again today. After hours, silver is 43.98 and 50 cents. We're looking for resistance on silver at 45 dollars, also at 48.50 and 51 dollars. And again, like we've mentioned previously in our letters and on the air, we think that when the silver price touches 48 to 51 dollars, uh, traders and investors, both futures and people in shares, should be very wary because at that point. Uh, that's the old high from back in 81, and we're looking for a pullback that could be a little more than extreme. It could be as much as 5 to $15. And mm-hmm. we think the reason that would happen, Jay, is because uh, that was the old high, and, and some of the old people will say, well, that's it. It can't go any higher. It can't violate that chart top, and we totally disagree with that. I agree with Sean Broadwork. We've got much higher to go. If we mm-hmm. can get past 51 this year, I think you'll see 59.60 in a flash. Well, certainly Sean agrees that there could be some resistance at that old high, some psychological resistance, even though when you look at inflation, of course, uh, it's, it would, would require a much higher silver number to, to get to the, to the real price of silver. What about uh, the long bond? Roger, you and I have been talking about this forever, and there seems to be uh, – I was just, I just come across apparently the Treasury – uh, is uh, is writing put options or give, you know putting providing put options uh, against the treasury uh, and and so that uh, to try to keep interest rates down um, and try to keep long term interest rates down you know now that the short term rates have been held down around zero for so long uh, what's going to happen to the treasury I mean it seems logic would suggest that that interest rates have to go much much higher yet if I look at a long term chart you and I have talked about this before going back to to 1980, 81 or 82, when the market, when the interest rates peaked, I mean, we're we're still in a bull market. If you look at the, you draw a line through the that long-term uh, interest rates, and you know the bond market is still in a bull market, isn't it? The long bond. It market. really is. We thought it had broken down, and uh, uh, both uh, James Turk and myself had tried to short it using futures or spreads or whatever, unsuccessfully many months, maybe even a couple of years ago. But they keep printing and pumping bonds. And the last two reports we saw on auctions indicated that uh, Bernanke had to buy back one auction. He only sold 30% of it. He had to buy 70% of it back. And then again, it got worse on the last one. I don't know what, how, what the time cycle was, whether they were selling two, twos, threes, fives, or what. But in that event, they only sold 10% of it. So what's happening here is Japan, with all their problems, and China, with all their problems, and believe me, they've got some new ones today we can discuss if you wish, Uh, they are not in the market to buy these treasuries like they were before. They're not wholesale dumping them over the side because they would hurt themselves if they did, but they're taking money and they're putting it in other bonds, Uh, euro bonds and even some of the trashy ones uh, that are just almost junk, like uh, Portugal and Spain and some of those. And they're even looking in South America I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they would want to be more diverse. They don't want to be, have all the, all the fish in the same kettle, so to speak. So uh, the bond market today, the June most active long bond on the futures, is up one-tenth of one percent. It's back up at 121. So 120 is support. That was the low, 12200, and uh, we're stuck at 121 right now. I think a lot of that, Jay, had to do with the fact that the stock market went down yesterday, or the mm-hmm. day before on this uh, S&P rating on Monday, I should say. Yeah. 
And uh, consequently, when that happened, while stocks go down, you know bonds go up. And I think that's what did profit temporarily. But okay, Roger, unfortunately, we, we, we are out of time. It just goes so fast. Uh, just mention to me um, very briefly China. What were you alluding to? And maybe well, we'll I get Ted Ohashi. I got a report today, just an hour ago, from China that says that uh, prices of new homes in China and China's capital, Beijing, plunged 27 percent month on month in March. Uh, and the Beijing News reported this on Tuesday. They said, citing data from the uh, city's House Housing and Urban Development Commission. And new, new new build homes in March fell 11 percent over the same month, and the prices fell. Get this year over year 50 percent and 41 percent. Mm. So, well. but the same thing is happening in China that happened in the United States. We did forecast that in in March last year when China dumped in 550 billion of tarp cash. We knew that was going to inflate everything, and it sure did, and it messed up housing. All right. Well, Roger, thank you very much for your contribution. We're uh, out of time. We're going to have to go to a commercial break. Thanks for uh, talking to us about all of these issues. We'll have you back again next week, no doubt about that. So don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back with uh, Vancouver analyst Ted Ohashi uh, from investmentpitch.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Enertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Enertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CNN. SX Exchange. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters crocodile gold corp is a new gold producer with bite with operating gold mines in the northern territory of australia crocodile gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010 Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. 
please visit our website at www.crockgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm happy to have with me again Ted Ohashi. He's uh, a, on the advisory board, as am I, of investmentpitch.com. Welcome, Ted. Hey, Jay. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Good. Uh, we were uh, in the Windy City a couple of days ago, you and I, and a team of people from investmentpitch.com uh, uh, at, at a very interesting show, actually. Uh, a show uh, that is uh, that that has grown over the years. Tell our listeners a little bit about that show. Yeah, Chicago sure. Resource Expo, I believe it's called. Yeah, it, it's called the uh, Chicago Resource uh, Expo. And um, although I've known uh, Richard Ez for many years, this was the first time that I'd ever attended, uh, and I was very impressed. Um, it has a more intimate feel to it. Uh, it's a touch on the folksy side. Uh, but the audience was uh, very knowledgeable and sophisticated, uh, and they sure kept uh, you guys on the panel on their toes, didn't they? Oh, yeah, that was very, uh, very interesting. It was a very interesting panel discussion, no doubt about that. I was uh, fortunate to have uh, with me uh, on my right, Mish Hedlack, who's been on this show. Uh, we'll be here, and uh, Al Corlin and some other, some other very interesting people as well. Uh, well, y- you... Uh, I guess investment pitch actually is going to be providing a lot of information to investors uh, if they go to investmentpitch.com over the next week or so. Uh, it, it's a way for people that couldn't be in Chicago to actually uh, enjoy some of the companies that, or learn about the stories of some of the companies that were there because I believe investment pitch has filmed some of them. Yeah, we, uh, is that right, uh, we Ted? And they're going to be available uh, at investmentpitch.com in the near future. Yeah, we captured the presentations of uh, nine companies, uh, Avino Silver and Gold, uh, Columbia Crest Gold, uh, Columbus Gold, Douglas Lake Minerals, um, Fisher Watt Gold, um, Hathor Explorations, Midland Minerals, Rare Earth Minerals, and Sniper Resources. Um, Mm -hmm. And so those will all be available uh, on our website and on the individual company websites uh, starting uh, later this week. All right. Well, a couple of them that uh, that I understand you you sort of like, and, and I should remind our listeners that you have been an analyst uh, working for major Canadian brokerage for uh, investment houses in the past. Uh, talk to us about a couple of your favorites. Avino, Silver, and Gold maybe is one of them that sort of struck your fancy when you listened to their story. 
Yeah, it, it is. Uh, ASM on the uh, TSXV, uh, they're reactivating the uh, Avino Silver and Gold Mine that they operated from 1974 to 2001 when they shut it down because uh, metal prices were low. Uh, this mine was first discovered by the Spaniards uh, in Mexico in the 1500s, um, but Avino got involved in uh, 1974. Uh, it produced uh, in that time 16 million ounces of silver, uh, 100,000 ounces of gold, and 20 million pounds of copper. Uh, so the current objective of the company is to put this mine back into production, and um, investors can benefit in two or three ways. Uh, first, um, they're drilling to expand their resource. Uh, second, uh, they can dewater and reopen the old mine. Uh, and third, uh, given current metal prices, they can do what many companies are doing and uh, mine the tailings uh, that they think uh, contain something like 10 million ounces of silver and 90,000 ounces of gold. Um, I like Avino's potential here because uh, Mexico is a mining-friendly area. Uh, this is potentially a very low-cost operation. Um, and they have a couple of uh, key institutional investors. Uh, in Canada, Sprott is well-known and highly regarded, uh, and they are uh, ASM's largest shareholder. Uh, and personally, on a personal note, um, I also like the fact that uh, U.S.-based uh, A to B Special Situations Fund run by Andrew Kaplan uh, another longtime acquaintance of mine uh, also has a significant holding. So okay. I sure think Avino is worth a look. All right, Ted, uh, we're just about out of time. If you get and give us one minute to talk about Midland Minerals. All right, sure. Midland Minerals uh, is currently drilling uh, its property in Ghana. Uh, Ghana is formerly the uh, uh, Gold Coast. Um, after South Africa, it ranks second in African gold production. Uh, this property is uh, literally surrounded by gold. Um, they have, uh, uh, they're close to uh, a couple of uh, uh, properties that uh, uh, were historic producers and are uh, about to go into production. Uh, one, uh, Keegan, that just raised uh, over $200 million. Um, they're on the gold belt, belt trend, um, and uh, uh, they have two properties in this area, either one of which uh, could uh, put this company on the map. Um, and uh, they do have a 43101 uh, resource of 400,000 ounces of indicated and inferred. Um, they also have a, a property in uh, Tanzania, which uh, I won't mention right now. Uh, but uh, here, too, I'm attracted by the fact that uh, institutions, including AGF and CIM up in Canada, uh, hold about 40% of the company. Well, thank you, Ted. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time, and I've got to let people know that we do have a program on next week. Thanks to each of you for listening. Thanks to our sponsors again. I want to thank our, uh, our the staff at Voice America for making this show logistically possible, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colomb, he's the operations manager, Justin Jackman, my crackerjack engineer. I want to thank each of you for making this uh, making this show logistically possible, and thanks to our sponsors for making this show financially viable. I want to say that next week we're going to have Chris Powell of the Gold Antitrust Action Committee with us and a surprise guest that should cause some sparks to fly. And thanks again for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time is 